Hello everybody and welcome to the History Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. This is Daniel Anthony. Daniel Anthony ran for Congress um, in Florida. He ran as a Republican. And I thought I would get him on to have what ended up being a very amicable chat. And I'm sure that Mr. Anthony and I can find things we disagree on. But I didn't really want to talk about that with this because there's a lot of problems in this country around disagreements. What I wanted to talk about were the things we could agree on. And I found actually more to agree on with him than I would have normally thought, or I guess otherwise thought. We haven't worked out the details yet, but he is going to come back um, sooner rather than later. I'm actually going to have him on uh, to talk about, because Mr. Anthony is a young man, uh, to talk about why he, as a young person, was attracted to the Republican Party. Uh, even just as a voter, um, because I think that's something that a lot of people in society have this idea that Republican voters tend to be older, and I wanted to educate people as to why somebody who's younger might want to vote Republican and then subsequently run for Congress. Um Anyway, folks, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too. And, I don't know, give this episode a listen. I also talk about the earlier episodes um, of my show where we talk, where I talk. It was a solo show then. I talk a lot about uh, my episodes dealing with COVID and the Spanish flu. And, um, all right, folks, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. I'm here with, I mean, do you want to be anonymous or? Oh, no, no. You're up. You, you can uh, you can announce me. <laughs> OK, I'm here with Daniel Anthony. Um, and I wanted to talk to him for a lot of reasons, one of which is uh, he ran for Congress as a Republican. Um, would you care to say what district that was or not? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Florida House District 9. Florida House District 9. And so that's local Florida or federal Florida? That's federal Florida. Okay. So I I have questions for you specifically about, um, because you sort of talked around this in our phone conversation. And maybe actually you addressed it directly a little bit, but you had said, so let me, I've been on Twitter for three years about give or take. And I have a thought, I have a theory about Twitter that I just had and I want to give it to you and you tell me how off base it is. Okay. Twitter from the perspective of the political situation be they republican or democrat and also from the perspective of the political media 
be that MSNBC or Fox News or whatever. The role of Twitter is for journalists and politicians to tweet, and then that tweet gets screenshot and then shared to Facebook. Yeah, yeah. It either gets shared to Facebook or it gets posted with a with an article accompanying it. Okay. So again, not I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. That's actually <laughs> um because here, here's something before we even met, air quotes met, I had noticed like all these politicians just just point talking points out into the void, you know, like They'll just tweet talking points. And if you're not from America or know anything about American politics, you might think these talking points are crazy. Um, and I just I thought, okay, that's got to be the role of Twitter. So do you want to start off on your let's start off biographically because we are a, this is a history podcast after a fashion. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me about yourself a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I was, um, <clears throat> so I was, uh, born in El Paso, Texas. Uh, I was a Navy brat. Uh, I ended up going to the university of Texas at Austin for undergrad majored in economics. And I commissioned as an officer in the Navy myself, uh, after I graduated and uh, I spent four years as a surface warfare officer with the Navy, uh, just means it sounds fancy, but really it's just, uh, you fight and drive ships. It's the traditional Navy thing. And, uh, so went around the world, on a couple different warships, uh, got to go to the Middle East, um, you know, helped with Operation Inherent Resolve. And uh, after I finished my time in the Navy, I decided that the best course of action was to go to law school. And to be honest, I, I, uh, you know, people ask me, why did I choose to go to law school? And I think a big part of it was I uh, absolutely wanted to be more involved politically uh, than I was. And I felt like understanding the laws that govern our nation was a good step towards that. My GI Bill covered it, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, out-of-pocket expenses. So I went to law school and uh, graduated from the University of Florida School of Law here in May. And I'm actually awaiting bar results now. And uh, in the interim of that, in my last semester, I, as you mentioned earlier, I ran for Congress. Uh, this January, actually. And mm -hmm. then I suspended the campaign this May. And we'll probably talk more about that in a little bit. But anyway, yeah, so so some stuff in between. I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful three-year-old son. Okay. Um, all right. And we talked via telephone about uh, we both think this country has some problems. And I, want, and I found a surprising amount of stuff we actually agree on. <laughs> um, you know, one of my, actually one of my high school classmates, uh, said that he couldn't listen to my show and tell how I, you know, what I think politically about stuff. And I, I take that as a compliment, but also maybe, I don't know. Um, so <laughs> why don't you tell me what you think? Tell, okay. No, that's loaded. Tell me about. <laughs> That's the old uh, that's the old lawyer trick too. Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. <laughs> well, okay. I don't know the answer to this actually, but I didn't want to come at it with bias. So tell me about Okay, right now it's it's this it's September 16th, 2022. Right. It's 3:42 in the Eastern United States. Tell me about America in this moment. 
Right. So America in this moment is, uh, you know, to, to borrow words from the great man himself, a house divided. Uh, and I think that we see ourselves, uh, I, I think we see ourselves kind of fracturally fracturing along civil lines. And the, the, thing that is frustrating to me and a large reason for why I suspended my campaign was because I would rather seek out solutions to that divide rather than driving those fractures deeper. And I think that these fractures really stem from four points. I think that they stem from the need for congressional reform, economic reform, shifting our focus from the national to the local, and a need for viable third parties politically. And, uh, and, and I can talk more in detail about that later. But really, I think that what this all comes to is that we're, we're at a time of great political tension, and we need to find a way to resolve that tension, or else we're going to see those fractures deepen and possibly even break out into civil conflict and strife, which, you know, even just 10 years ago was unthinkable, but seems now to be a common talking point. Okay. I agree with you that there are massive problems in this country and there are structural problems in this country. And there, there are, you know, we're going through in this American moment a lot of strife and division and blah, blah, blah. I don't necessarily think we're going to end up in a civil war. Okay. Uh, I do, not in terms of like a 19th century understanding of what that is. Maybe more like the Troubles in Northern Ireland, for sure. But I don't know if you know what that those were. That might have been before your time. Uh, it was before my uh, time, but like I'm, I'm familiar with the concept. And, and I actually, I agree without without stepping on your feet here. No, I think that whenever you hear people, uh, you know, later on, I can recommend a, a really interesting book by uh, Dr. Barbara Walter. She's a political scientist, and she came out with a book called How Civil Wars Start. And uh, mm. she just published it a few months ago. Anyway, she's this political scientist who basically has gone around the world studying civil conflicts, and she's created this uh, this scale, you know, to determine like what kinds of nations, in, you know, go into civil wars, and mm-hmm. uh, and basically in her book she talks about how the United States has kind of slowly entered the realm of this scale, scale where a civil war is possible. But you're right, like a 19th century understanding of civil war, I don't think it's even possible in this day and age, right? I mean, you couldn't divide along north and south uh, with where our politics is. This would be more of an urban rural conflict. But more importantly, I think that yeah, I think what we're more scared of, right, is like terrorism, right? Like we, we as we understand mm-hmm. it now, I mean, domestic terrorism is a very real threat. And so yeah. how do we avoid that? How do we how do we kind of relieve that pressure before that becomes a legitimate concern because, you know, along with the specter of terrorism comes the specter of a surveillance state, which steps on our freedoms. We, we already got a taste of this in the post nine 11 era. And, you know, we certainly don't want another taste. Here's okay. And this is where I'm going to start to sound like a Republican. And this might've been what my high school classmate was talking about. <laughs> um, I can have, I can stop talking to you. I can go on Reddit. And I can find any podcaster or any whoever, right? Any content creator on the planet, right? Who knows what they're talking about. And we can have a conversation about Google ads and Google and how Google is like far and away the the biggest um, purveyor of advertising on the planet. And it's not even close. Okay. Um. And this is a problem, and this is very problematic for a whole host of reasons. Um, 
And I think that's a huge part of our strife right there is that Google is set up to make you stay on Google, Mm -hmm. right? It's not set up to give, well, okay. Through giving you what you want, it's, it's making you stay on Google. But if you're, you're not going to go on Google and change your mind most of the time. Right. Right. (laughs) No, I mean, you're right. Most of the time. Yeah. Um, and the more, like the more uh, I get into Google ads, the more I'm like, I don't think Google should be thought of as like a search engine to find like global warming uh, stuff or (laughs) whatever. Like, I don't know, like just actual facts about reality. It might be a little contentious. You know what I'm saying? No, yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. And so you're saying, like, you feel like Google, like, is. I mean, I get where you're coming from. Like, you're absolutely right. Like, I think that <clears throat> what you're talking about is kind of a symptom of a larger problem where we, we recognize that there, you know, that there are issues in our world, but it almost feels like there's mm-hmm. been this kind of almost collective shrug where we're like, yeah, you know, that sucks, but what are you going to do? And, and, you know, we kind of have to stop shrugging and actually start figuring out solutions to this right just like what you're talking about with google you know we can't just think of google as this innocent search engine uh you know like it's not the same thing that it was back when i you know like when i was like 10 years old and it first came out in 2002 and we all thought it was cool that you could um you know you you could uh just google like your favorite television show and information would pop up on it like uh i I used to use google to find like um i don't know if you ever watched avatar the last airbender but i used to use it to find all the fan forums and you know like when i was like 11 12 years old that was like the coolest thing but that's not what it is now right this is a multi-billion dollar conglomerate there you know google ads google research goes a lot deeper than you know the search engine and but a lot of times we just kind of shrug our shoulders and we we don't think about it and i'll give you a, a real world example with me that i'm dealing with with my own ads yeah. um apparently google has decided that they're trying to make it harder for folks like me to put out podcasts and information about the the war in Ukraine without like I have to call it something else. You know, and and their excuse is it's not positive. Right? <laughs> they want positive stuff out on their website, which is adorable. It's <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's incredible when you think about it, right? Because we always look back at history with this like kind of like, you know, shaking our head like, you know, those poor naive fools, you know, like, I can't believe my, my great grandparents were fooled by this obvious propaganda. But, but what do you call what's going on now? Right? Like, what do you call whenever uh, I, I had a buddy who posts regularly on YouTube, and I won't drop his name, but, um, but he, he's a pretty big guy on YouTube. And he wasn't re- allowed to use the word COVID in a lot of his videos, like from 2020 through 2021. Oh, yeah, no. That was a a big issue, right? Like you got like you got kind of like censored. And it's like, what do you call this? if not propaganda. You're literally altering what people say in order to make your view of the subject more favorable, you know? And is it my thing is, okay, I have two critiques specifically for the COVID situation, right? With with Google, with in regards to Google. My critique is, number one, I want to talk to somebody. I want to talk to a person at Google who made this choice, right? Yep. Like, 
if I have a problem, okay, example, and I'm not equating Google to the government here, but just, <laughs> I don't think you can, there isn't an, an analog that's equally big. And equally no, absolutely. Important. Yeah. If I have a problem with my IRS bill and I have a lot of free time and I just can sit on my phone all day long, right? Yeah. I can call somebody at the IRS, right? Yeah. Why can't I do that with Google? Honestly. Oh, because right? because Ben, they're a private corporation, right? Who certainly don't have any kind of public responsibility, even though they're fundamentally regulating speech. Uh, okay, I'll agree with you that they're a private corporation. <laughs> but my question is, and again, I'm I know this is a, a, a we're solving a problem here. Yeah, yeah, no, I, go ahead. I get it. But why can't Congress come in and say, hey, if you're going to do this, if we're going to let you have a monopoly, because that's what this is. This is a monopoly. I can tell you statistically, most of your searches, by which I mean about 98%, take place on Google. <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah, Most of your searches. Okay, so here's the deal. Why can't the government step in and be like, okay, we're going to let you have this monopoly, like we let AT&T have a monopoly, but you're going to have a call center <laughs> mm -hmm. somewhere in the U.S. that people can call and complain. <laughs> well, well listen, I mean, like, this isn't a new concept. I mean, you mentioned AT&T a moment ago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, remember, I mean, uh, maybe not remember, but AT&T back in the 20th century ran into this very issue whenever they controlled most of the telephone lines and they controlled most of the telephones, basically the telephone services in the United States. And, and the government came in, broke them up. They basically forced them to divest and sell to different regional counterparts. And even today, like AT&T and the telephone business is very much monitored and regulated by the government. Think about our utilities. Think about electricity. Think about gas, right? These are also heavily regulated by the government. Why were they regulated? They didn't start out regulated, right? Because originally the argument was, well, this is a private commodity. Like if you want to use it, you can use it. If you don't, you don't have to. But then over time, you know, telephone services, electricity became so prevalent and so necessary that it became unfair of the government to say, well, you just don't have to use it if you don't want, you know, like that became an impossibility. And I think Google is nearing that same, that, that same same period in their own history where it's no longer fair to say, well, if you don't want to use Google, you just don't don't use them because they've they've invaded every aspect of online life. Even if you think even if you're one of these guys, uh, I, I did this for a while, like we use DuckDuckGo and you're like, oh, like I'm I'm off the I'm off the Google teat, you know, like I'm I'm <laughs> off the grid now. You're not off the grid. You're still absolutely feeding Google's data machine just in a different way. And, and uh, DuckDuckGo is based on Chromium, too. So, I mean, I use DuckDuckGo. But it's based on Chromium, which is which is this Google search engine. So uh, yeah, absolutely. And so I just think that we've kind of reached this point where, like, we're we're reaching this point that we reached with AT and T that we reached with. Um, I can't remember what AT and T stands for, but like the you know the original company, uh, you know what we reached with electric uh, utility companies and things like that, where the government's going to have to step in. And you're right; they're either going to have to you know somehow bust them, which I don't know how you do that with Google, uh, but or more more likely you regulate them. And, um, and and just as a quick aside, because we were talking about my congressional campaign, this was actually one of the one of the tenets of my congressional campaign was bringing First Amendment protection to 
the internet, basically bring First Amendment protections to social media and things like that. Because I think we're getting into it. This this doesn't directly speak to Google, but it does speak to the wider in an internet sphere where I, I get worried that we are giving too much power to private companies uh, to regulate what we talk about, how we talk about things, and that can absolutely backfire on us. And what you even search for or what you... Like, okay, I'll give you an, I bet you don't even know this, Um, or you might, because you sound like a smart guy. (laughs) Would you care to guess without Googling it? Hey, there's a verb. Without Googling it, would you (laughs) care to guess what the number three search engine is? (laughs) Um, Ask Jeeves. (laughs) You have to go way outside the box. No, I have no idea. I'm not even going to try it. Yahoo Search is my last Amazon. guess. Amazon. Amazon is the number three search engine. Would wow. You care? This is where we get into, I bet you and I can agree on something here in a minute. <laughs> Would you care to guess what the number four search engine is? And also the fastest growing search engine. Uh, I, I still don't know. I'm guessing number two is DuckDuckGo. So no, what is it? Okay, number two is YouTube. Oh, number, th- number three is Amazon. Number four and the fastest growing starts with a T. Uh, Twitter? No. Tumblr? No, not Tumblr. Um, Chinese. Oh. It's, it's TikTok. TikTok, yeah. Oh, my gosh, really? And it, it's the fastest growing search engine, and it's the most popular search engine among Gen Z people. Seems healthy. Okay. Now here's something you and I can totally agree on. I can, I can just feel it. <laughs> All right. I can, I can feel the agreement and the kumbaya <laughs> radiating across the internet. All We're about right. to hold hands virtually and sing kumbaya. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the Chinese Communist Party, and I love TikTok. I, it's the second best, best app on my phone. <laughs> I love the creators of TikTok. I love the idea of TikTok, but the actual the fact that all the state is going to China, I'm I'm like no, 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 no. Yeah, but no. Here's the, <laughs> when I tell you what they're searching for, that's when you're like, okay, this is crazy. If you're hungry and you want to eat breakfast out, TikTok is a great place to search for breakfast where you live. Just really? I didn't know that. Okay. Any kind of restaurant, any kind of local mom and pop <clears throat> restaurant, any kind of local service, great way to search for that. Oh, wow. Just saying. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, that's news. I, I don't have TikTok. My my wife sometimes sends me Instagram reels from TikTok, but I've never actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I was in the Navy before this and they frowned on us having it. So I just never got into it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So. When and if you run for Congress again, you can bring that up. That's that's crazy it. to me. And, and it's, it, you yeah. know, you're right. I'm not crazy about the idea of the CCP having such a, a chokehold on, you know, I mean, Gen Z, like you said. And and you, the, the whole generational wars thing is so stupid. I, I hate that kind of stuff. But what, it, what does worry me about that statistic is the fact that, I mean, they are essentially molding then the minds of our late teens, early twenties in subtle ways, you know, I'm sure they're not getting, you know, (laughs) military advertisements to join the Chinese army or anything like that, but, but, you know, subtle 
tonal mm-hmm. shifts in their searches will, of course, alter how they think. I mean, look at what social media has done to us in just twenty less than 20 years. Think about how it's altered the way. I mean, you talked about this in our phone conversation a few days ago, but think about how social media has altered the way that we interact with other human beings in our day-to-day lives in less than two decades. So think about what China can do with TikTok. Well, also, yeah, and also, so Mark Zuckerberg was not overtly political. No. Like, Mark, that's the thing that concerns me. He was a creep. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's a robot. (laughs) He was a creep, but he was not overtly political, unlike, say, uh, what's his name? Uh, Xi Jinping. Yeah, no. Uh, who, so, who may have a little bit more of an agenda than Mark Zuckerberg. No, you're absolutely right. I think I think Mark Zuckerberg yeah, you know, was out to make a profit, and I think that was his biggest yeah. thing, and, and still is with, uh, I don't know, I think he's gone off the deep end with this meta thing, but but you know I think that's still his, his driving force. But you're right, though, that there's this, yeah, the, the Chinese obviously have a different, you know, they, they just have, and so anyway, I go back to what I was saying yeah, before about, no. I, oh, what? <laughs> go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say, yeah, I go back to what I said before, where I think First Amendment protections need to apply to online social media at this point, because at this point, it's too big. Like we were talking about with Google, it's too big. You can't just tell people, well, then just don't use social media if you don't want to, you know, if you if you don't want to have, you know, follow these private corporations guidelines. The problem is that in order to survive in this day and age, I mean, I've had job interviews that I got through like Facebook chat and stuff like that through LinkedIn and stuff like that. So it's really a necessity of of modern day living just as much as the telephone became a necessity of modern day living. Living in the mid 20th century to the point where you can't just ignore it or say, well, just don't use it then. Uh, government intervention needs to happen and it needs to extend its protections to these to these arenas. And not only that, but OK, we're technically of two. You said you don't agree with the generational divide, but technically we're of two generations here. So I'm going to ask you a question and I think I know the answer just based on whatever. Do you have cable? No, cable. I do not. Cable. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I haven't um, had cable in 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you watched what we call linear television with commercials? <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been a decade at least. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like so even like going to a bar or watching a sporting event and like that. Oh, now, you know what? That's a good point because I do watch um, I do watch football games and I'll use like YouTube TV like you can download that special. So I guess they have commercials there to, that, to watch like live football count. games. Yeah, yeah. OK, so if that doesn't count, then, yeah, no, it's been it's been a decade. OK, when was OK? The point I'm driving home is here's the thing. So advertising comes on comes to people via Facebook, Twitter, yep. TikTok and Google. Right. Here's the problem. The, at least in the West, Facebook is is dying. You know, people are leaving Facebook. So how do you how do you handle that as an advertising situation? Again, not a necessarily a thing. A, you know, a congressman needs to think about, but you know, it's a problem. 
Oh, it is a problem. And, and you're you're right. You don't have to think about it immediately. But I think that these are the kinds of problems that actually Congress should be looking at because this is something that you can actually take a proactive rather than a reactive stance on. Because you know the money's go- not just going to – like advertisers aren't, advertisers aren't just going to you know shrug their shoulders and be like, well, <clears throat> you know, I guess we're just not going to be able to advertise anymore. They're going to find new outlets. And so you have to find – you have to – think you know it's almost like chess like think two moves ahead like where are they going to go next and is that going to cause problems you know and and i think we're already seeing part of it i'm sure you've heard about netflix and their new plan for like a lower tier that includes ads Uh, so i think streaming services are going to start to pick up some of this again we're going to kind of like a weird cable 2.0 but um but but still like where where else are they going i mean tiktok that was a great example of that right they're going to go to places like tiktok reddit twitter and they're going to try to fill your feeds with ads that way but also, like, they're going to – so, helpful reminder, uh, piracy is still illegal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, just saying. <laughs> good, to, good to know. And, and obviously, no one here on this show would ever, has ever, you know, pirated anything. Napster, I don't even know what that is. I never listened – I never went to Napster back in 2005. So, you know, I'm perfectly innocent. You know, like, if, if – Every freaking network develops their own, uh, you know, their mm-hmm. own bloody streaming service. At what point do people just like say, well, forget it. I'm just going to go back to, you know, sailing the high seas on the Internet and finding my episodes of The Office that way or go back to like hard media like DVDs and stuff like that. But but like I feel like at some point there's there's, you know there's a rate of depreciating return whenever you have so many streaming services. There's certainly not enough money in the world to fund all of them. And there's not enough time and there's not a whatever. Okay. Let me bring it back on the beam because we could talk about Kumbaya stuff. all day long. <laughs> And, but meanwhile, even I am in the back of my head saying, ask the man about, okay, let me ask you some questions. Yeah. Um, all right. Talk to me about healthcare. Yeah. So it sucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Next question. No, um, yeah, I, I think that this is one of those things where, uh, believe it or not, like this was kind of one of the issues that I had whenever I was running for Congress. Like I said earlier, like uh, you know, if, if anyone goes to my Twitter after this, they'll see the letter that I wrote about why I was why I was suspending the campaign. But a large part of it was because I kind of feel like <clears throat> you're you're not allowed to cede any ground to the other side whenever you're running an election, and that's not how I work. Like I think that. I'm more of a thief than anything else. I like to steal good ideas and put them together and make them work for me. Uh, you know, okay. and so I can't just stand there blindly yelling that no, you know, you're wrong and I'm right. Uh, and healthcare is one of those issues where I, I really think that the vast majority of Americans actually agree that this is completely out of control. But because I'm a Republican, I have to. Uh, what I have to be shoehorned in with the pharmaceutical companies, you know, the multi-billion dollar conglomerates. Like, is that really my, you know, is that really my hill to die on? And, and the answer is no, like I in good faith couldn't do that. I think that, um, I think that a great starting point, at, at least in my mind, a great starting point for this conversation, uh, especially in a post Dobbs world where Roe v. Wade has been overturned by the Supreme court is why don't we focus on the healthcare of children? Um, you know, like if, if we really want to make sure that we're at least like common ground, right? Republicans say that they care about children and that's, you know, why they want to row overturned. Democrats, of course, say that they care about children, which is, you know, their argument for a lot of uh, their social engineering. So why don't we work together to make sure that we have universal child health care? Um, if we could get something like that off the ground, which I mean, I, I if you look at the numbers, uh, it would require less than 
5% of what we spend on our military budget to fund basic health care for every child in this country. Why don't we just do that? I mean, what a simple start. And then if it works out, well, then great. Maybe we can have a universal health care. Like if it works out and it doesn't collapse the system, which I propose it wouldn't, then maybe we can expand that to have like a baseline health care for everybody. If not, well, then we tried it with a smaller sampling size. It worked out. Why? So here's my question. And it's a question, right? This is a question. Why can't we, instead of spending an absurd amount of money on our military, why can't we spend that on healthcare? And (laughs) I get it. And not all of it, not all of it for sure. Because we spend an insane amount of money on our military. But look, Russia is not even the best military in Ukraine right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. No, you're absolutely right. Listen, here's the thing that, I'll just talk candidly for a second. This is the nice thing about not being in Congress right now. Uh, I can be a little bit more candid. The thing that pisses me off um, is the fact that we do spend so much money on our military, yet I can tell you from a first-person vantage point, that money does not go to help your baseline sailors, soldiers, airmen, whatever the hell we're calling our space force spacemen, uh, you know, but it's not going to help those people. It's not going to help those individuals. Right. Um, I had multiple sailors under my charge when I was a division officer who actually needed uh, monetary relief, who had to take out major loans to support their families. I just read an article yesterday talking about how uh, the army is helping its, <clears throat> its infantry officers basically disseminate information on getting food stamps to their, you know, to their foot soldiers, to their grunts um, in order to make ends meet. That is ridiculous. We are spending, you know, this much freaking money on the military, and yet we're having our soldiers and sailors have to get food stamps. I mean, so so you're put, making them a strain on the state government as well as putting a huge strain on the federal government by raising the the you know amount of money by this much. And I'll tell you where the money goes, at least partially. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. This is just the truth. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Zoomwalt class destroyer. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, not as such. Okay, yeah. So the Zoomwalt class destroyer was this, you know, oh my gosh, it's going to be epic. We're, you know, three feet away from Star Trek technology kind of ship. <laughs> and and we, we commissioned, we set out a budget for three of these freaking ships. Um, and after 10 years, a, a ship that was, you know, projected to cost like $100 million ended up costing billions. I'm not exaggerating here. You can look it up, Zoomwell, billions of dollars mm-hmm. to produce one ship, okay? Uh, uh, mm-hmm. it, its whole number was 1,000 because that sounds neat and futuristic. Um, I got to tour mm-hmm. the Zoomwalt actually, and I won't I won't go into too much detail because I don't know how much of it's not allowed to I'm not allowed to be out in the public or whatever. But anyway, very futuristic ship, very cool looking ship, but we produced one and then we decided to cancel the program after 10 years and billions of dollars, you know, and it's not just things like the zoom wall. And then we went back to creating a more DDGs, which is the mainline ship that we, we basically mm-hmm. rely on now. Um, but then it's not just that it's contractors. It's the fact that I had sailors who had been in the Navy for over 10 years and could not do, <clears throat> could not do corrective maintenance, could not do repairs on the equipment that they had spent their entire careers working on. And so we would have to fly out a contractor in the middle of the ocean for five days at a, at a cost of about, you know, ten to $15,000 a day just to work on that equipment rather than my sailors knowing how to do it. And the reason they didn't know how to do it was because our, uh, our, 
our, without going into too much detail, our, our timeline, our fleet timeline is just too compressed. Uh, we're, we're stretching ourselves so far in so many different directions that we don't have time to send these kids to school. We don't have time for them to learn to do their jobs properly. You get out of boot camp, you go to the fleet, son, and you figure it out. And if you don't figure it out, well, then we're going to spend all that money on contractors to help have them fix it. And that cost, that adds up. That costs a lot of money. So all that money that you see in the budget, that's going towards things like ridiculous projects like the Zoom Walt so that companies mm-hmm. like Lockheed Martin can get a little bit richer. And it's also going to contractors so that when things like the Zoom Walt break, we can call those contractors from Lockheed Martin to go out and fix it. And uh, and I know that I'm, I'm making generalizations here, but I don't think anybody who's been in my shoes as a as a military officer would disagree um, mm. that, that there's an over-reliance. So this rant to end it <laughs> the point of this rant though is to say that yeah uh we could absolutely make cuts to our to our military budget without sacrificing without sacrificing even one iota of national security if we put in the time to make sure that we were actually taking care of the people who drive our military you know those soldiers those sailors those airmen the mm-hmm. people who are actually the driving force if we got them the school they needed and gave them the salaries they needed to survive we would have a much more proficient fighting force hmm and why don't you think we do that i think it's i mean i think this is what eisenhower warned us about i think that we have created a bit of a monster in the military industrial complex you know and this was not me like you know eight years ago whenever i was first joining the navy and stuff like that i was very idealistic i and i still am i love my country that's why i'm here right now talking to you Um, but it just, it it made me realize when I was in, like, I was just looking at the unbelievable amounts of money that my one ship alone, you know, was blowing on things like contractors and stuff like that. And you realize we're propping up entire industries alone, you know, on our own, you know, like, so there's a very concerted interest in making sure that our military relies more and more on these contractors and these companies. And and to be completely honest, it worries me with the wind down of the wars in the Middle East because it just, like, I I actually applauded. Once again, this is why running for Congress was so hard for me, was I actually applauded um, Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. I do not applaud how he went about it. I think that his generals failed him. I don't like my, uh, I don't like general Milley at all, but I will say that I was glad that we got out of Afghanistan. Uh, when we did, it was long overdue. Um, <clears throat> but it worried me whenever that happened because now I'm kind of worried about, okay, what happens next? Because it almost, because you have this multi-billion dollar beast on the shoulder of the American people and it's going to be fed one way or the other. Let me ask you a question because I've had Afghanistan veterans on here. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I've ever... In fact, I know I've never had somebody quite like you on here to talk about this. Without... Or be as candid as you want to be. Right. Why do you think Afghanistan was... What would you want to call it? A failure? A waste? Um... I mean, why did you applaud the president Biden for exiting Afghanistan? Let's start there. Yeah, I, I just, you know, and I hate to say this as you know, uh, the son of a naval officer and a naval officer myself. Like, you know, my family was has been very intimately involved in all of our overseas dealings for decades now. Um, mm. But I, I think that Afghanistan was a uh, 
in hindsight, I don't think it really accomplished anything. I don't think that we, I don't think that any of the goals that we set out to achieve when we initially invaded Afghanistan uh, came to fruition, you know, whether it be smoking out. I mean, like we, we certainly took out our fair share of like leaders of Al Qaeda and things like that, Mm. but I don't think that it required the kind of ground presence that we ended up having there in order to do that kind of stuff. I mean, if you go back and you look at the leaders of the Taliban and Al Qaeda that we've wiped out, almost all of those have been through like drone strike, remote airstrike, things like that. Not, not, Mm troops on the ground, you know, taking these guys out. Um, so I think that it was a huge waste of manpower. And I think that it was a dangerous pivot for us. And, mm. you know, um, I, I watched it. I watched it live when I saw what happened uh, with my dad following 9-11. And I saw it myself mm. when I was in the military. We are not focused on the actual, we're, we're not focused on the real threat uh, is the, the, the way that I would put it, mm. right? Like, the Taliban, Al Qaeda, they're idiots. We need to take them out where we can find them, but that should not be driving 90% of our, of our doctrine militarily. Mm. We need to be focused on the up and coming threats. We need to be worried about China. We, we obviously need to be worried about Russia still. Although frankly, I think Russia's a bit of a, I mean, as you mentioned, (laughs) second most powerful military in Ukraine, I think they're a bit of a paper tiger. I don't think that they're the real threat, but I think that uh, places like China are a legitimate threat. I think Iran is still a major threat. And yet we, focus so much time, you know, climbing the mountains and eating sand in Iraq and Afghanistan that we kind of forgot that. And and we've allowed our rivals to actually, in some places, actually surpass us and some capacity surpass us in their own backyards because we were so distracted by this very specific type of war fighting that won't be useful anywhere else in the world. Let me, do you know anything about the Moore versus Harper case? Moore versus Harper. Uh, can you refresh my, my recollection there? It sounds familiar, but I'm okay. I'm drawn blank. Moore versus Harper is a very important Supreme Court case uh, coming up. It has to do with let me Google it. Let me Google it exactly. Um, uh, let me spell more right. <laughs> Okay, this is the Moore versus Harper from the SCOTUS blog. Okay, or would you prefer? I'm gonna ask you. I'm gonna ask you. All right, would you prefer me to read the SCOTUS blog version, the uh, the docket from the Supreme Court? Mm-hmm. Uh, which one would you prefer? Uh, I'll, the the SCOTUS blog one. Okay, they're fine. Uh. Whether a state's judicial branch may nullify the regulations governing the manner, the quote, manner of holding elections for senators and representatives prescribed by the legislature thereof and replace them with regulations of the state court's own devising based on a vague state constitutional provisions to ensure free and fair elections. Essentially, what this is, is in North Carolina. The, the state of North Carolina does not like that the court system in North Carolina doesn't want them to have, uh, they want, basically the, the court system wants the, the um, essentially there's this idea of running around for the last 20 years that the legislature may be able to pick, um, essentially pick election results out of thin air, basically. Mm. Um, if you go, it's on a spectrum, but yeah, that's yeah. the furthest one way. And, and the furthest, the other way is saying, no, um, 
you can't do that for federal stuff. And okay. I was just kind of curious what you think about that. Yeah, now that, a- you, now that you read that to me, it, it does trigger, I, I do know a little bit about it. I'll be honest, I actually, uh, this is very exciting for me. I actually just got uh, picked for publication in the Florida Journal of International Law. Uh, but my article that I wrote was about, um, it's a 40 page, it's a 40 page document about um, statutory comparison of Florida and Japanese condominium law. So right now my head is filled with, uh, <laughs> with condominium laws and statutes. So, um, but anyway, you know, as you mentioned more of you Harper, as you're reading that issue, I, I did, I did start to, to remember other stuff beyond condo law. And um I will say that, uh, you know, without without diving deeply into it and obviously not a not a barred lawyer yet, even um, I I can just say, like, from a thousand miles away, I understand as to my understanding, their their state constitution does allow for you to for the judiciary to step in whenever there's a misunderstanding, like it explicitly states the that the judiciary can kind of fill that void if there's a misunderstanding about the statutory purpose or um, procedure for electing um, members of the, of the legislature. Uh, and so if that's the case, and if there is, if there, if their constitution does cover this situation, then I don't understand what they're upset about. I think that, I mean, in that case, if you don't like it, amend your constitution. But if your constitution allows for this to happen, allows for your judiciary to step in to clarify a point of confusion about a law, which in reality is the whole point of a judiciary, then you really can't be too upset about it. Um, that seems like that should be a point of clarification that the legislature should take under advisement. But I mean, that's that's literally mm. what the courts are there for, right? Um if there's, if we don't understand how to implement a law, then, you know, we turn to the courts to do it. So if my understanding of the North Carolina state constitution is correct and, and granted it might not be, but I remember reading somewhere that this was explicitly covered, that they grant the judiciary this kind of power of review, um, then, then mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't see any problem with what they're doing. Like I, I get when people get upset about courts, um, digging too deeply into political issues, you know, kind of sticking their noses Mm -hmm. where it doesn't belong or where it would be best left to the people. Mm -hmm. But this doesn't strike me as one of those issues. I mean, this is, uh, this is one of those things where your constitution allows it. So, you know, if you don't Mm -hmm. like that, amend it out. Okay. So some people, uh, believe that the Supreme court may literally make it so that the legislature can just start picking results. Mm, okay and that's what some people are concerned about okay yeah um yeah i i I get where you're coming from and i get the concern there i mean i don't think that it's likely that's going to be what the supreme court says i think that in a case like this we're going to see a very narrow tailoring of the i think we're going to see a very narrowly tailored holding um because especially the Mm. supreme court as much as people you know, I know so many people want to say like the Supreme Court as an institution is highly politicized, and I agree to to a certain extent that they are very politicized. I think it's very hard for people not to look at the Supreme Court through their own biases and stuff like that. But the truth is, the Supreme Court normally holds comes <laughs> like unanimously decides like ninety percent. I forget the exact number, but it's like over ninety percent of the cases that come before them they decide unanimously. Um, so a lot of times, this is a very you know like the court is a very um, unified body and i think that here we're going to see something where they say they're going to like they may strike down 
specific or they may strike down or they may hold up specifically what the North Carolina state Supreme court did without really delving any deeper into the issue of, well, how much say does the legislature have as far as, you know, who can be elected from that state, who can represent that state. And like I said, this is honestly, I can only give a thousand mile view of this because I'm, I need, I need to go in and read the, the case myself. Um, so I know this is a very lawyer answer. Where I'm like, Oh, it could be one way. It could be the other, but I will say that based on what we're seeing from this court, I would not expect a very broad answer to this question. I think they're going to try to narrowly tailor it to the North Carolina situation and if the North Carolina Constitution allows the judiciary to get involved, then I don't see this court overturning that uh, unless there's mm-hmm. no, I just don't see them overturning that. Well, I mean, I couldn't not ask you that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, no, <laughs> absolutely. No. And, and I should have uh, I should have researched it. Sorry. I'm now if you have any questions about condo law, I can I can talk. Well, to you I, about do, that. I, I do. I <laughs> do. Funny enough, I actually do. OK, perfect. Um, OK. Let me see how to phrase this question in a in a um, most congenial way. Um, <laughs> let me okay. Let's take a baseline, right? Yeah. Let me just take a baseline with you. Um. Do you believe, whether it's man made or otherwise, do you believe climate change is happening? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Okay. All right. Okay, next question. Now, I lived in Florida. Not as long as you have, but I've lived in Florida. Okay. Okay. Um, I remember sinkholes forming. Whether you want to call that whatever. I remember yeah. huge sinkholes forming. I have an honest-to-God question. Okay. Right now in the state of Florida... If a gigantic crater-sized sinkhole forms and collapses my condo, what happens, legally speaking? Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, No, that's a good question. And, you know, you're right. Regardless of what causes it, that is a uh, a valid question. So um, what would... would pretty much happen here in florida is uh if if an act of god which i'm you know we're we're probably going to call this sinkhole uh occurs to your condominium uh then there's kind of two options i should stop you for just a half a second and say to my international audience that an act of god is an actual legal term is it not yes yes in the united states okay please continue Okay. Yeah. So if you, if you have a, uh, and you know, for all of your Florida listeners, this is not legal advice, um, you know, consult a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, generally though, if you're talking about, uh, yeah, an act of God happening to your condominium and getting destroyed, there's two things that could happen. Uh, one, you could have a, you could have a situation where the condominium association decides to essentially rebuild. Um, you know, like you could say like, okay, we're going to, um, there's that SpongeBob meme, you know, like dig bikini bottom up and push it somewhere else. Uh, you essentially do that with your condominium, right? Yeah, you, you move it to a different place. Uh, or the more likely situation, though, in this in that in that possible, if that happens, is that the association will essentially pay out members um, pro rata from you know like from the funds that are within the association's holdings and then anything that doesn't make up their loss will of course be covered by insurance and they basically just have to go find somewhere else to live how much i don't i've never lived in florida 
as what you'd call an adult. Yeah. Um, how much is insurance for hurricanes and stuff these days? Do you, do you mind saying? Well, you know, to be honest with you, I, I so I live here in an apartment, and so our mm-hmm. like I just have rental insurance. I don't have home insurance. Uh, so I can tell you though that I know for a fact that the just broadly speaking, that the insurance market here is taking uh, a pretty heavy hit. We have some major insurance um, players pulling out of the state. I'm sorry? Up or down premium? Up. Oh, up, up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because we we have uh, some major carriers uh, who are are pulling out of the state or considering pulling out of the state uh, in part because of hurricanes and just in part because of other uh, just, just, just legal matters that are affecting the state, and uh, that's causing a premium premiums to go up generally because there are fewer providers of insurance in the state, and then the ones that are staying in, they have to make sure that it's worth their time to be here still, so they increase the cost to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, but yeah, sorry, I wish I could tell you, but unfortunately, like most people my age, home ownership is a uh, is a yeah. elusive dream. I don't know. I, I didn't mean to get personal. I just. No, I no. I don't, I don't know what hurricane insurance costs because I've never bought hurricane insurance. No, it's kind of interesting though, right? Because uh, there actually hasn't been a major, um, a major hurricane here in over a decade. Like, and by major, I mean like something like where, like you know, you have like the streets are all flooded and like you know mm-hmm. uh, a major amount of uh, infrastructural damage and housing damage. Uh, there have been, of course, major hurricanes, but they've hit around here. Like you had uh, Irma and Maria that hit Puerto Rico back in 2017 and Harvey that hit Houston, but they've actually kind of uh, been sideswiping Florida for a while. So uh, fingers crossed, I'm probably going to jinx it with this episode right here, but (laughs) we've been relatively (laughs) safe the last decade. Now, what about, okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm going to push back slightly. Okay. I remember... Jesus God, it's been five years. <laughs> oh boy. Wow. I remember five years ago. Yeah. I was going on vacation and I went to Montreal and points like that. Mm-hmm. And it was, there was a hurricane, and I cannot remember for the life of me the name of this hurricane. But I distinctly remember it hit this island in the caribbean and basically obliterated it and the the then junior senator from florida i remember i remember i'll never forget this being in the the hotel lobby in this place in new jersey and um watching marco rubio avail himself of the senate microphone (laughs) <laughs> and tell to tell the citizens of Florida to get out. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, um, get out. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I gotta tell you, you may be talking about Irma and Maria because those were those did still hit um Florida somewhat. And they were major I, I think of them more as affecting Puerto Rico and um and the Virgin Islands because we, we have a large Puerto Rican population here. And actually uh, there was a large influx of Puerto Ricans following those hurricanes because the islands were so devastated. Um, and so I think that it just more affected them there, but it did hit Florida. And fun fact, actually in that 27, five years ago, 2017, I was this time five years ago, I was actually deployed. Uh, we, we got deployed for humanitarian relief for three months. 
um, down to those areas because they were so hit. And uh, it was it was actually a very rewarding deployment. It was much more rewarding than my combat deployment, to be honest. Um, you know, go figure helping people is more fun than blowing them up. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you, what were you doing uh, in the humanitarian yeah, so I was on uh, the USS Kearsarge, which uh, it's an it's a it's essentially an amphibious aircraft carrier. And I know people people in the Navy are going to cringe at that because they're like, well, it's not really an aircraft. Carrier. It carries helicopters <clears throat> and it also carries Marines that we launch out the back of the ship. And um, and so that's its whole role. And so in that with that capacity, we were able to uh, send pallets of food, medicine. We were able to land doctors ashore via our landing craft for the Marines. And uh, yeah, it was an incredible three months. It was very stressful. I remember we were actually out in the middle of the ocean. We were out in the middle of the Atlantic doing exercises and those hurricanes hit. We got called into port and in less than 24 hours, we got called into port for less than 24 hours to load up on supplies and get down there. And so I, you know, we came in and I told my wife, I was like, you know, Hey, love you. Don't know when I'll be back. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, and, and we jumped and jumped back on the ship <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, I was actually an engineering officer then. And we were, uh, my, my plant was responsible for about a hundred thousand gallons of our potable water per day. And I remember it broke mm. like right before we left. And that was probably the most stressful <laughs> 12 hours of my life. Me, me and my sailors just down there in the pit, just trying to, uh, you know, make sure we're going to actually have water to drink. Um, it, it, but uh, anyway, that's what we were doing though. We were providing medical aid, food supplies, all that stuff. Hmm. Well, good for you. Um, good for you. I'm, I'm sure that was very rewarding. I, I just remember, uh, I don't remember the name of the hurricane right now, but I do remember standing in this lobby in the hotel in New Jersey, watching the senator from, watching Marco Rubio literally tell people to, <laughs> basically he was saying, you know, get out. And he said some other words that I've never heard a senator say. <laughs> <laughs> just get out. This, this is when Generation X becomes it gets in the senate you know yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i like that there are certain words that our mothers taught us not to say that we use as sentence connectors <laughs> <laughs> you know like yeah like wow <laughs> but and i'm a podcaster and i talk to a lot of people so yes we do don't know we don't me <laughs> no i yeah to be honest it, and that was i was still living up in norfolk at that time so it's a little bit before my time but I, yeah just if you ask like the average floridian um because like you know like a couple years ago like a hurricane blew through here but it wasn't like a strong one and so like they don't count that you know and i was like i remember like being like well that you know like i can't believe like a hurricane's about to hit and like everyone just acts so nonchalant about it you know they're like oh it's not even a cat too like why are you worried so you know like when i say it's been like a decade i mean it's been a decade for floridians i you know i'm originally from texas so it's a very different beast for me uh you know like uh but yeah people here are just man they're just nuts they just they take it head on I, I really admire that spirit and i'm trying to emulate it but uh same thing with gators down here like they're so nonchalant about the fact that like there's just alligators around and uh i still get, get freaked out i went kayaking with my wife last summer and there was this huge you know like eight foot yeah. long gator in the water as we're boating by and my wife's like 
and, and what's funny is she's an immigrant. She, she immigrated from Japan, um, but she immigrated when she was a kid. And so she's been fully indoctrinated in the Florida man lifestyle, I guess. And uh, so she just pulls out her phone and she starts taking pictures like, oh, look at that. Like, it's so cool. And I'm like, let's paddle and get away from this thing. Like, you know, do you not see the man eating beast right out the dinosaur five feet off of our port bow here? Like, uh, you know, let's, let's get going. So earlier in our conversation, I had talked about how I love TikTok creators. Um, there was one incredibly brave human being who actually put on TikTok, like they actually showed a video of a, of an alligator moving. Like when an alligator wants lunch, you know? Yeah. It can boogie. Yeah, it can move. No, do not try to. I don't, and I get such conflicting information and this aggravates me so badly. Ask three different Floridians what to do if you run into an alligator and you'll get three different answers, okay? So one person will tell you, oh, just run, run zigzags. And then the next person will say, no, don't run in zigzags. They're actually really mobile in zigzags. You need to just run as fast as you can. And then another person will say, no, they can run up to like 50 miles an hour. You got to climb a tree. And someone will tell you they can climb a tree. So, you know, I, I've just given up. If I see an alligator and it tries to eat me, I'm just going to succumb to it because... I've decided that no matter what you do, you're going to get eaten by this alligator. Okay. I am, for some reason, I'm on Florida TikTok, and I I don't even know why. (laughs) I have a lot of creators on my TikTok that are are Floridians uh, or post Florida adjacent stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay, folks, I have witnessed on TikTok, I've seen alligators climb pretty high fences. So, no. Yeah, don't climb a tree. What the? My question is, what was was you know like? I just you know I'm a I'm a devout Christian, but sometimes I'm like, you know, what was God thinking when He made these things? Like that's that's incredibly scary, you know. And I guess the only really nice thing about alligators compared to uh, crocodiles is that crocodiles are apparently much more aggressive than alligators. Like I said, we were in this kayak and we were just a few feet away from this this big one who could have easily, you know, had me for lunch, I think. And and he just, you know, watched us and went on his day. And so alligators, I'm told, and this has seemed to hold up, it help, this has seemed to hold up over time, is that mm. unless they're like very hungry or desperate, they are not going to go for humans just because we're too large and we're too bony uh, to be worth the trouble. So crocodiles, on the other hand, apparently do not have that that discernment well okay so i want to keep asking you questions um that are somewhat serious because you seem like a nice guy and we could joke around forever but um (laughs) all right let me think about okay i talk to a lot of teachers yeah i have uh i don't know if you heard them but i have some anonymous teacher podcasts some of which are not as anonymous as other teachers but that was their choice and not mine yeah, I listened to um, one uh, from a couple weeks ago that you did. It was pretty good. Which one was that? It was the uh, the woman, <laughs> the woman who you talked to, where y'all had to re-record a bunch of her stuff, and oh, she, yeah. yeah, 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 and uh, she was just talking about the like the struggles with disciplinary issues with children and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Well, there there's an actual problem going around throughout throughout the entire country of, of disciplining students and. Some people have pinned it to No Child Left Behind, and some people haven't. Yeah. But, and I don't want to make a talking point out of it. It's just a fact. I mean, there's a problem. Oh, yeah. And how would you, what would you do? How do you do that? How do you fix this problem that anybody can see as a problem? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I come from, uh, after my dad retired from the Navy, he was a high school teacher. My aunt is a, was a middle school principal. Now she works with administration. My grandmother taught elementary school for 35 years. So like I'm heavily enmeshed in, my sister is a teacher, is a first grade teacher. And, um, so I'm, I'm heavily enmeshed in like these issues and like discipline issues. And, And it is something on the one hand, of course, it's a personal issue, right? Like I absolutely believe that the breakdown of the family structure leads to a lot of these behavioral issues that we see with children that like, frankly, the state just can't fix on its own. Right. Like, I think this is a lot of this starts at home. Um, but I do think that there are things like we can't just accept it. We can't just wipe, wash our hands of it and be like, well, I guess they're going to be terrible. There's nothing we can do about that. Uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I, I've seen some, some articles about certain states bringing back corporal punishment. I just, I don't think that's going to be, Maybe with younger kids, that's effective. I remember growing up in Waco, Texas, uh, when I was like in first grade, I was scared of getting the yard stick, um, you know, and you're Gen X, so you probably had that threat too. But, you know, like the real grades that we're talking about here, middle school, high school, where not only disobedience is a problem, but violence becomes an issue. Like those aren't, those threats aren't viable anymore. Um, and I, I think that you have to get, children invested in the you have to reinvest children in the idea of education uh you have to make them think that this is worth their while and we have neglected the education system for so long and we are letting it essentially run on fumes that they think it's a joke because we treat it as a joke um and so i unless you're a very unless you're a diligent student who's trying to go to an ivy league school or or a good state school um then you're not really as concerned about because you know you're going to pass, right? I mean, this is this is what my uh, my friend who's a middle school teacher he was telling me. He's like, none of my threats really carry any weight because they know that they're going to pass at the end of the year because I'm not allowed to fail anybody, and that really yeah. stuck with me. The fact that he wasn't allowed to fail anybody. If we want to get across the seriousness of a good school of a good education, then you have to be allowed to fail these children <laughs> as backwards. No, no child left behind is counterintuitive to this, but I think that's actually the answer here is we have to start allowing these children to be held back. You have to know that, hey, you're not going to just get to breeze for the next 12 years of your life and then walk out with a diploma and that'll be it. No, maybe you won't get that high school education. Maybe you won't get that high school diploma. And then how much harder is your life going to be without that? You know, I remember when I was a kid in the 90s, we used to have commercials about um, how difficult life would be. I don't know if it was the federal government or if it was the state government of Texas or who, but they used to run these commercials on uh, like the difference between someone with a high school diploma and the, and someone without and like, like how their lives would turn out. And it was like the same guy. And in one, he had his diploma and he had a good job as like, you know, a construction site worker or, you know, a plumber. They had a bunch of different scenarios, but in the other one he didn't. And like, he was like holding a sign outside of a restaurant. I think that we actually kind of have to bring back that mentality that a high school diploma on its own is worth something because uh, in this kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to dive, uh, this is going to seem tangential, but it's not, but I think that we've overinflated the market for college degrees. And in the process, we've deflated the importance of having a high school diploma to the point where people just kind of take it as a given that you're going to get your diploma, even if you're not literate, you know, like you're just going to get it because we need to force you out. We need to push you out the door. Um, and, and this saturation of like college degrees and this need for college, which was really pushed on my generation has led to people just not taking public education that seriously. I think that so, so I think it's kind of a two prong effect, right? Like, I think on the one hand, we need to allow children to fail so that they realize that this isn't just going to be handed to them. But on the other hand, I think we need 
and I am seeing this actually, I'm seeing a change in this. Like, I think we need to stop requiring college degrees for every single job in existence when it's not required. Um, because if you could actually make jobs like required only a high school level education, well, then suddenly getting that diploma becomes a lot more important to people. So they're going to take their studies a lot more seriously. Uh, and I know that that's not something that the state can push as much, but I actually am encouraged like on LinkedIn and stuff like that. I'm seeing more and more jobs open up that just a few years ago would have required a college education are now being opened up to anybody because of the labor shortage that we're experiencing. And that's a good thing. Uh, let's make a high school diploma worth something again, other than just a one-way ticket to the military uh, so that people feel like they need this thing. And then when they feel like they need it, let's make them work for it so that they take their studies seriously. I think the thing, let me gather my thoughts here. Yeah, absolutely. The thing I think that needs to happen that needs to happen is I think we need to reinvent high school. I really do. Hmm. And I didn't necessarily believe that or believe it to that extent until I started talking to these people all over the country. Mm -hmm. I think we need to have, first of all, we're going to have a serious trade, skilled trade problem in this country in a few years. If we don't already have it, number one, Number two, there's a lot of like coding jobs and stuff like that that you can learn without a college degree at all, just on YouTube even. So I wonder, we need to reinvent what high school is, I think. Like what is, what are we doing? What is happening in this building? And what needs to continue happening and what shouldn't be happening anymore? No. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, you talked earlier about the generational divide between me and you, but so I, I can't speak to what happened with Gen X so much, but I can absolutely tell you that what happened with my generation, I graduated class of 2010 from high school. <clears throat> um, what was pushed on us was it was college or nothing. I mean, it was literally when you went to the career counselor's office, there were rows and rows of pamphlets for colleges. And then at the bottom, there were four stacks for the Marines, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army. That would, those were your options, right? The career counselor, yeah. ironically, had four, you know, had the military and then college. There were no actual careers other than those. And it was really heavily pushed. And I am encouraged um, somewhat. Like I said, my dad was a high school teacher and he told me up until like last year and he told me that he saw them. He was he saw people pushing for other stuff. Uh, you know, like he saw like um, he's actually part of a nonprofit now that works with um, teaching kids basic engineering skills. They I won't go too far into this, but basically what they do is over the course of a year, this program helps kids build their own airplane and then they get to mm. pilot it at the end of the year. It's a really cool program and they're selling this all over the nation. Now it's a nonprofit, uh, super cool. And, um, Anyway, uh, but I say, let's say that like, so they're teaching kids these like more hands-on skills. And I'm happy to hear that because you're absolutely right. Like we have to fundamentally change what high school is about because not to get too conspiratorial, but I think that the, <clears throat> I think that you had a lot of money riding on this idea of everybody going to college. Um, there was a lot of, there's a lot of money in the higher education as you probably, as you're probably aware, especially I with think basically unlimited loans. I think one of the problems, well, there's a couple, I think a few things happened. One thing that happened was Google happened. Like we, the search engine happened and you could suddenly just Google how to do something. Yep. Or you could YouTube how to do something. 
And before, you didn't, that didn't exist. So you had to know your way around stuff. And the education system never modernized beyond that, number one. Number two, I went to, I went to high school during the Brady Bill. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not to get too divisive. Yeah, yeah. But I honestly think that right there, the fact that I was in high school during the Brady Bill and during, like, before social media, really, you know, um, those two facts right there made my high school that much safer. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Honest to God. Um, one of the so the reason I started even talking to teachers, the reason I wanted to do that, is a lot of podcasters or teachers as a day job, mm-hmm. and they would talk to me off air about some of the insane stuff that goes on in their classroom or that in their building, and like this one guy. Let me not say who he is. <laughs> <laughs> One guy off air detailed how so jobs today don't want educate they don't want college education. And the kids know that. What they want are like service experience. And there was a place that these kids could get to where they could run a cash register. So what these kids were doing is they were breaking each other's arms, right? Yeah. So that way this kid could run the cash register and that kid couldn't. And that's how desperate, that's how whatever this is. Oh my gosh. So, and yeah. And (laughs) some of the craziest stories that I've heard from the anonymous teachers are actually from podcasters on my feed who talk to me off air about their day job. Yeah, that's that's insane. I mean, you know, it's it, crazy. it's yeah, no, and it's gross. And, and I mean, yeah, it, I think we could go all day about it. But I think that the biggest thing that the state, if we're just looking at it from a governmental perspective of what you know the state can do, I think you have to start failing these kids. I think you have to start holding them back, and you actually have to make sure that they're they're learning something. You know, they can't just see this as something that they have to skate by. Like I said, though, they treat it like a joke because we treat it like a joke. I'm I am absolutely. I think that you. I think that we need to figure out a way that like we, you know, we have to increase the pay for teachers and it's, it's a two sided coin here because I hear people who are like, well, you know, okay, well we're increasing pay for teachers, but I didn't have a good experience with public education. I'm publicly educated. I didn't have a good experience with it. But the thing is, you're not going to have a good experience with it. If you're bringing in the lowest common denominator, a lot of times the people who become teachers are very passionate and they're very like, they want to work and they want to work with children. And then those guys will rush out within a couple of years because the job's nothing like what they expected. Um, and so it, then it leaves these people who I, there are still some dedicated individuals who continue as teachers, but there's also a lot of people from what I've heard from my own teaching family and friends is that a lot of people are just there to collect the check at the end of the day. Like they've kind of had their dreams quashed. They don't care about the kids anymore. They're just, they're dead inside. 
you, you increase the pay, you increase the level of professional that comes in and tries to teach these kids. You bring in lawyers, doctors, engineers, right? Uh, people who are willing to take some kind of a pay cut, but obviously can't be paid. Here in Florida, the average pay for a teacher is like $45,000 a year. That's not enough to live on. Here in Orlando, in Central Florida, we have the highest rate of increase in rent of any part of the country. Uh, so there's no way that you're going to be able to live off $45,000 a year. So increase the pace so that you bring in some of these, you attract some of these professionals, you attract these really good teachers and these people who are dedicated to the kids. Um, and at the same time, you make sure that you, I, I say, why don't we figure out a way to use our instructors, our educators all year long? Because I hear people complain a lot like, well, they're only working for nine months out of the year. Okay, well then let's find something for them to do the other three months out of the year and pay them for it. Uh, you know, like we, like, one of the one of the biggest problems that I hear from people uh, from my relatives is that like a lot of these kids in the lower socioeconomic brackets suffer during the summer. Um, and in fact, here in Florida, we actually moved up the start of the school year to the first week of August just so we could get kids out of the heat because all these kids don't have air conditioning at home. They're you know they're starving. They're not getting meals, and so they moved up the school year so that like okay, well we can get them like free breakfast and like they'll be in an air conditioned building. You know, and it's like. Okay, but if that's the concern, why don't we just open up the schools longer for long, you know, throughout the entire year and hire our educators? But instead of just, you know, regular classes, you have more outdoorsy things, you have more activities, you do funner things, like almost like a summer camp, but it's free and for the public. And this way you're employing the teachers and you're paying them for a full 12 months. So no one can argue, well, why are we paying them so much for nine months of the year? Like, you, you see what I'm saying? It's like we could. You, you can pay, like, you know, you can complain that, oh, well, teachers only work for nine months out of the year. Well, yeah, only because you allow them that. Why don't you make them work the full 12 months and in return, they get a much bigger paycheck increased by 25 to 30%. Uh, you know, things like that. These are common sense solutions, I think, that are right here in front of us where, well, you know, we can, we can make this work. The thing I would suggest is, like, imagine being in a room... Hmm. Let me see if I can scrub identities here. <laughs> Imagine being in a room with somebody who, like an autistic kid mm -hmm. or whatever, and the kid hits people. Yeah. And you're in charge of feeding this child. Um, and the person said to me, I think I deserve a couple months off because my job is I feed this person and, and he hits me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're saying like, what do you say to that person? I, and I think there's kind of a twofold response there. First of all, I, I don't know about every state. I do know that... <clears throat> Here in Florida, a lot of times there's like a, a stipend or a bonus that goes along with being a special education uh, provider. However, usually that's not enough, once again, to make the job worth it in a lot of cases. Um, so yeah. I think that on the one hand, you have the stipend, which encourages people to stay on. I also think that you could easily I, I've talked about this uh, on Reddit uh, a bit um, because <clears throat> I am on Reddit much to my own chagrin sometimes. Uh, but, uh, I, I have been on the education forums and I asked people about this very idea. I was like, what if you were told that you could have a choice between a, uh, 25 to 30% increase in salary, or you keep your summers completely free. Uh, and what was really interesting to me was I saw teachers say that they would choose the time off, you know, like a lot of them were specifically, you know, I don't want to make many generalizations here, but a lot of them were women who were mothers. And they were like, you know, this is the only time I have with my kids. My kids are out of school. So I want to be out of school with them. Yeah. And I was like, okay, 
So, you know, what if you offered that as an alternative where you're like, okay, either you can, you know, take that time off and you can enjoy your summer like it is, or you can, which apparently many teachers would choose, or you can choose to do these school programs or, and you know, it doesn't, it doesn't strictly have to be working with children either. Like talk about that special education teacher is talking about. Uh, what if they worked at the administrative building for the next three months and worked on curriculum and helped devise curriculum for the entire district and gave their firsthand inputs. Like I said, my, my, my aunt is works with the administration of her County. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the big things that I've noticed is they, they seem to be lacking a lot of firsthand experience. So, you know, bring those firsthand educators to the building and have them talk to the superintendent and to the council and explain what their experiences are. So Mm -hmm. they can kind of structure their uh, educational analysis around real life experience. And that's actually something that, that I agree with. Um, that, and there was even, you referred to her, the, the young lady who was a teacher, she, I don't remember if I had to cut this out or not, but there was something about, um, some of the, like the administrators in her County were like, um, they'd made the quickest path possible to administration. So they didn't have a lot of teaching experience. Um, you know, but I don't know. Um, so we addressed it before, um, or I did the, the Brady bill. Yeah. Um, violent. And that's something that comes up a lot in my podcast is with teachers is the, the violence, uh, or the threat of violence. Um, how would how would you a republican mm-hmm. a person who ran for congress as a Repu- how would yeah. you deal with that i mean it's not this i think we i think we make things more complicated than they really are <clears throat> listen if you look at any pew or gallup poll you're going to see that a vast majority of americans whether they identify as democrat or republican are in favor of background checks for firearms uh, this is not something that should be divided along on party lines, and yet it is. And you know, we can go into why it is, but it's not. It's really not a political issue. Whenever you talk to individuals about it, I'm in support of background checks to make sure that a person's not crazy before they get a gun. I'm a gun owner, and <clears throat> and I fully support people being able to have firearms. It's, I mean, it's enshrined in our constitution. However, it's not one of those things that just, I mean. You know, and I've seen people, I see people use this analogy all the time, but I think it's a fair one. You know, we have free speech, but you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? Well, it's the same thing here. You know, you can own a gun, but you can't be crazy and own a gun. Um, And so, and so, yeah, no, I don't really, I know what you're talking about, the Brady Bill, and, um, and I don't really have any issue with it. I don't think that there's a problem with having a background check, with having a cooling off period before people buy it. Is that going to stop gun violence? You know, unfortunately not, because there's going to be plenty of ways that people can illegally get their hands on guns. But I don't think that just because something doesn't 100% stamp something, stamp a problem out, doesn't mean that it's not worth taking corrective action on. Uh, and, and I told you this when we talked a few days ago, but, you know, I was an economics major in college. So I really don't see the, the one thing that my major ruined for me for the rest of my life is I no longer see anything as a 100% solution. I just see like problems and then I see like dozens of minor solutions that can contribute to fixing the problem. And so something like background checks is one of those things where it's not going to be the end all be all answer, but it 
at least will help somewhat, you know, it at least helps somewhat and it makes, it, it makes life easier and it makes people safer generally, even if it's only a, you know, a 3% increase in safety. Well, it's still 3%, you know? Well, right. And like I say, you know, I went to high school during, during the Brady bill and right after the Brady bill sunset or not right after, but soon after the Brady bill sunset, you had Columbine. Yeah. I mean, hello. <laughs> I don't, I don't see the, uh, I don't see what you're getting at here. You know, it's just completely lost on me. No. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Like I, I, and you know, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, like I don't remember all the details of the Brady bill, but I remember that there was a waiting period. Um, and it was specifically aimed, I believe at, at, uh, what am I trying to, Oh, handguns. I think it was like specifically waved handgun, uh, like, you know, mm-hmm. geared towards that. But I mean, it just, like I said, it, it makes sense to me. And if you ask people on the street, what do you think? I think that the problem is in this heightened political climate that we find ourselves mm-hmm. in, you either are for me or you're against me. And there's no in between. And it's like, even on things where we all agree when we're asked individually about it, mm-hmm. suddenly if you hear, if I hear Elizabeth Warren talking about it as a Republican, well, then I'm completely against it, you know, just because of who she yeah. is. Well, there's a story that I tell all the time in my show. Because it was, it just impressed me. It, it imprinted on me. I shouldn't say impressed me. It imprinted <laughs> on me. Um, there was a lady. I was in a shoe store. And there was a lady that needed uh, special shoes. And her Medicare, it was either, I think it was Medicare, mm-hmm. wasn't going to pay for her shoes. And it, they had done that in the past. And she thought that that Trump was going to fix Medicare, but actually I knew that Trump had campaigned on actually doing away with that program. And here she was voting for it. So to me, it's like you have to connect people to policy results in their head. Yeah, no, you absolutely do. No, that's, you're exactly right. Like you you can't have them, you know, cutting off their nose to spite their face. And, And unfortunately in the weird echo chamber that we live in, echo the the age of echo chambers i should say that we live in uh people will just get this idea without you know like that something's bad or good for them without thinking through the effects you know exactly and and so that yeah no anyway we could we go back to this but i know i want to hear what else you have to ask uh kumbaya Um, (laughs) (laughs) no um okay let me let me run through a hypothetical yeah this is this is a thing in my mind that I have been thinking about ever since the day I started podcasting. Hypothetically speaking. Yeah. Again, this is hypothetical and nobody come back at me and say, you had this laid out, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Let's pretend that we have a brand new disease. That emerged. I don't know if you know this, but viruses. I learned this from my own podcast, from researching the Spanish flu. Um, viruses love grasslands. Okay. Huh. Yeah. In fact, most viruses on Earth evolved in a specific place in China. Just saying. That's interesting. Okay. No, I did not know that. Let's. Okay. Let's say that a virus comes into this earth 
on the Great Plains in the Midwest. Yeah. And it has a much higher lethality percentage than COVID did, at least officially. Okay. Mm -hmm. Much, much higher. Um, What should, what do you think would happen? Um, given that we live in a society where a lot of people just want to be left alone hmm. and don't want the government to tell them what to do. and Yeah, you know. yeah, right. No, I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, and and I get where you're coming up with this question, given you know what just happened with COVID. I, I, <clears throat> here's the thing. You're right. In your situation, you know, we have a virus with high lethality. I feel like you're going to see greater compliance with a more rigorous federal overtaking in that situation than you would see with COVID simply because I think more people would be personally affected by it. Um, You know, whereas with COVID, I think there was a lot of, well, you know, this hasn't happened to me or I had COVID and I was okay. So, you know, therefore it's not a big deal. Um, But in in your situation where people, I, I, you, you said that you looked at the Spanish flu, actually. So that's interesting because, I mean, if you look back, um, mm. if you look back at things like smallpox and and um, the Spanish flu, <clears throat> and you look at like kind of the early days of vac- of mandatory vaccination in the early twentieth century, um, there were a few cases where the vaccine for smallpox was opposed, not really on religious grounds. Interestingly, more on liberty grounds. Um, but you can look at these mm. cases from the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties. And you can read these Supreme Court cases that were pretty much landmark and got some dusting off in the last few years for understandable reasons, um, where the Supreme Court at the time said, you know, listen, it's okay for you to have your personal liberty, but you can't put the community, wider community at risk. And therefore, you have to get this vaccination. Um, and, And that was kind of their their mandate. And so I think that that mandate would probably follow through here. I think that if we had something like the Spanish flu, though, I you studied it, so correct me if I'm wrong. The mortality rate on that was extremely high. What, what was the percentage on that? Okay. <clears throat> this is my, used to be one of my favorite podcaster type questions. Uh, when I started studying the Spanish flu, um, we had, we, who's we? Um, historians uh, yeah. had just had a dramatic reappraisal of the Spanish flu. Uh, they had revised the Spanish flu death total upward. Okay. In some cases, in some cases, massively upward. Um, the death total ranges anywhere from several million up to a billion with a B people, depending on what you're calling a Spanish flu death. Okay. Right. Uh, for example, let me let me tell you what I mean, okay? For example, a whole lot of people apparently died of the cold uh, from 1917 or from 1915 to 1919, okay? Right. The problem with that is you can't die of the cold. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, hey, the other thing that we need to bring up is that Dr. Milner was writing about was writing Harvard. That's the guy that discovered air quotes. We, they now think discovered the Spanish flu. Yeah. Um, 
the thing is, according to a uh, to a declassified government document, uh, government study that was declassified under Bush, the second, okay, George Bush, George W. Bush, right. Uh, the Spanish flu had been knocking around Kansas uh, since 1900. So, huh. yeah. So, essentially, Dr. Milner found it 15 years later. Oh, that's incredible. Now, I did not know that. Now, when Dr. Milner discovered it, and when he was writing Harvard, uh, he was not describing a flu. He was describing a seizure or a stroke. Okay? Right. Um, so what some people think, and again, I'm not a doctor, uh, but, but I do know how to read. So what, you know, to put it mildly, what some people believe is that the Spanish flu essentially evolved from something else into a flu-like situation. Um, there is... A curious, okay, that's that's an antiquated term. There is a disturbing situation that happened, I think, in San Francisco. It was either San Francisco or, or Los Angeles. And it was where this lady had, had what we call in the 21st century a boyfriend. And he died of the Spanish flu, okay? Now, he died of the Spanish flu and collapsed into some flour. All right. Now she was a baker and she baked a bunch of bread or cakes or whatnot. Everybody to a human that ate that flour died. Oh. Okay. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. And when you talk about the Spanish flu in San Francisco specifically, you have to mention the fact that San Francisco largely, a lot of people died of, of, uh, undiagnosed situations okay okay so when you're asking me for a countable number for an arabic countable number this many people died of the spanish flu i can't give you a number um but it's somewhere in the range of a couple bill a couple million all the way up to one billion with a b people Okay, yeah, and either way, I mean, like, the for purposes of what you're talking about, for your example, I think it yeah. doesn't really matter, because the point is, it had a very tangible effect. I mean, my my only experience with the Spanish flu, like, my knowledge on it all pretty much comes from either Hemingway novels or, like, history books, whenever we're talking about World War One and life in the trenches. <clears throat> but either way, like, I know that it was a very heavily felt presence, So, and sometimes even more so than the bullets that were flying around. And, uh, and so if you're looking at a situation like that, a viral situation like that, I think people are much more willing to cede personal, um, personal comfort or liberty in the name of safety in that kind of situation. Well, think about this. And so I Googled it while you were talking, the lethality percentage of Ebola, that's Ebola is between 25 and 90%. That's pretty serious. 25 is, is insane. Yeah. That's crazy. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's pretend, okay, hypothetically speaking, Ebola shows up in suburban Minneapolis or <laughs> suburban, I don't know, you know, uh, Denver. Yeah, yeah. Right? 
people fake news, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Suddenly, I think Facebook people are going to start, you know, government folks are going to, hang on. No, you're saying this. You can't say that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I absolutely agree. And, and I think that there's, I mean, like I said, I think that, you know, we kind of dealt with this with smallpox a hundred years ago, but I think that whenever the lethality is is, is of, at such a heightened state that it does kind of, re it requires immediate action. And I think that, I, I do think that people would be more understanding of it. I, you know, like I, I know that I've, I've heard people complain ever since COVID first started that like, well, this is how we're going to handle uh, pandemic, you know, like this is super dangerous and you know, all that stuff. But I think that, yeah, Ebola 25% mortality rate. I mean, on the low end, something like that, it's going to, it's just going to be felt immediately. And sometimes you can't wait for, uh, what's that saying about the truth? You know, like a uh, lie spread is, is, is makes its way across the world before the truth gets out of bed or something like that. But, before um, the truth puts on its shoes or something to that effect. And yeah. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, if you know the truth, if you are in the city, if you're, you know, whoever's in charge, uh, in that situation, you, you just gotta, you know, kind of put your big boy pants on and be ready to withstand the criticism. If you know that this is that lives are on the line, you know, I think that that's kind of where this kind of falls is even if people are going to say initially that you made the wrong decision. Well, if you know that you're saving lives, then you've got to be willing to, to make that. I mean, that's why we elect what we hope to be strong individuals as our leaders is that they can make those decisions. Yeah. And I mean, like, so there's a story, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget it, but, and I've said this story a few times on my show, but when I was at uh, college, um, there was an older fella in my uh, class and he, um, he basically like he described when he was much younger, living through the early days of the AIDS pandemic except he was describing the late seventies mm -hmm. or the, even the mid seventies at that point. And what he was talking about was nobody tapped him on the shoulder and said, this is AIDS. He just knew people were dying. Oh, he man. thought it was like, he literally thought it was just something in his building or like it was something just in his neighborhood that was killing so many people. And, you know, and he left. He went to Mont. He went to Montana. He said, "I stayed there for years." <laughs> I mean, you know? yeah, <laughs> you know, it, I think that that's one benefit for all the for all the guff that we've given the internet over this last yeah. hour and a half. Uh, one of the nice things about the interconnectedness of our world is that I don't think that kind of thing could happen in this day and age. You know, I think that if, if people start dying, everyone notices immediately. Well, okay. So one of my, um, I used to talk to people about their COVID experiences, experiences around COVID. Yeah. And some of the more interesting podcasts, again, for technical reasons or whatever, didn't make the internet, but there was some, or in the early days, there was some, like, people didn't know. They didn't know this was COVID. You know, nobody said, yeah, the reason this person died was COVID. Yeah. No, I mean, I, to this day, I maintain that I actually got it. Like in the, like I was, I was living in Virginia at the time when it first broke out in March of 2020 and they had just announced that it had hit Virginia. Like the first, you know, like the first case it hit and they announced that like two days after I had gotten like severely ill with like a fever and I was having trouble breathing. Uh, I passed out for the first time in my life in the middle of a workout. 
And, uh, cause I was having so much trouble breathing. And, um, anyway, I couldn't get tested because the hospitals were all basically shut down because they were worried about COVID. And, uh, I kept trying to, uh, you know, like get into like the emergency room. And, you know, by the time I did, they were saying like, you know, well now, you know, you're testing your tests. This was in the very early days. So they, their tests were inconclusive, they said. And, um, anyway, it was just a, it was a nightmare. Like, you know, and I never actually found out like, you know, yeah. was that COVID? I had the antibodies afterwards. So was that it or, um, anyway, it was just, uh, so I, I think you're right. I think that just like with the Spanish flu, like you're talking about, I think people could have very well died and, and you know, maybe went un, unreported or underreported and that, and that's a fear. I think that's definitely a legitimate worry. But like I said, I think that if we, if you come up against something where people are personally impacted and they're watching loved ones die, I think it changes the narrative, you know, pretty drastically, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, think it, I think it would. I mean, I had a, a, a friend of mine actually um he's convinced to this day that he had covid way early like way way early because like he thought he had a cold and then it mushroomed and he went to the hospital and they never could figure out what he what he had Mm -hmm. and he they he said i came within really close to being put on a ventilator and they still don't know he was like they still don't know what i had and then after covid became more whatever he was like you know it was probably COVID. honestly honestly it was pretty- yeah no i mean i i would not be surprised I, I sound like a nut sometimes to people but like i'm like i know i had it then like because you know like because then i got it later i got it like a year and a half later and it was actually like a much milder version of what i had felt you know that year and a half earlier and oh, i mean <clears throat> yeah i'll totally start sounding like a tinfoil hat crazy person just talking to you about stories people told me <laughs> no but i think that i mean but like that's the that's the thing about that kind of stuff is like you don't you know once again like i said like you have to have strong leaders in place who are going to put their foot down and say like hey i mean like if something like ebola or something like that even if the rest of the world's going to call them nuts you know thankfully covid wasn't that dangerous and and we all you know like at least a large portion of us came out somewhat okay but the thing is like you, you you need to hope that you have a system in place and Regardless of where you fall on the econo- uh, on the political spectrum of it, <clears throat> of things, I think that one thing that COVID did show was the unpreparedness by our larger federal organizations like the CDC and stuff like that. You know, we saw people, we saw a lot of flip flopping in the early days. We mm-hmm. saw like one message come out, and then I mean, I remember at the very beginning, people saying that you know masks were going to be completely ineffective, and then you know a few weeks later, saying no, now everyone has to get a mask, and and, and there was just like the, there was a lot of miscommunication and misdirection, and you know, I know people want to talk about misinformation and the Russians and the Chinese and all that kind of stuff. But just here at home, like your own federal agencies need to be in tune with one another before they put something out. Uh, And and I'm hoping um, I'm hoping that this experience has helped the federal agencies learn that they need to streamline their communication uh, before they put something out. Yeah. All right. Now, um, you've been a peach. Let me, um, I'm, I live in Georgia. We say that okay. I say it, I say it, I say it, let me, okay. Did you want to talk about, um, anything else? Uh, sure. If you don't mind me, just give myself a quick plug real fast, please plug away. <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, like I said, my name is Daniel Anthony, and I have a—I actually have my own podcast called The Relief Valve, <clears throat> and um, and the entire point is kind—the of, entire premise of it is kind of based off of uh, kind of 
the end of my, the reason I suspended my political campaign, which is that, you know, like I said earlier in the show, I realized I didn't want to be fracturing. I, I didn't want to fracture further our country. I wanted to kind of help us find these common ground areas where we can move forward together. And, and so the relief valve is, is part of that. It actually, and I'm sorry to your listeners. I'm, <clears throat> I'm coming over, uh, getting over a cold, but anyway, but uh, the, the idea of the relief valve though came to me last year, actually in my last year of law school, uh, just, you know, scrolling through the doom scrolling through all the news and, you know, all the vitriol and all that. And I, I got so tired of it that I shut my laptop and I grabbed a brand new legal pad that was on my desk. And, and I started writing out just like basic ideas for how to fix our country. Like, and by fix our country, I mean how to relieve political tensions in our country. And, and that's why I call it the relief valve. Cause when I was in the Navy, I was on a steamship and we had these, they were called relief valves, emergency, uh, emergency relief valves, where if the PSI of the steam got too high in these, in these pipes, then this valve would automatically trip and it would lit off the excess steam so that the pipe wouldn't burst and rupture and kill somebody. And that's exactly what I see my podcast doing is it's, we're, <clears throat> we're trying to, uh, we're trying to lit off this excess steam that's building up in our country before we burst and, you know, kill somebody. <laughs> and uh, so that's what the relief valve is. And the idea of it is, you know, there's four prongs to it. There's congressional reform. There's a shifting of focus from the national to the local. There's economic reform and there's viable third parties. And so in, in this podcast, I talk about each of these prongs. I talk about like, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about congressional reform? You know, what kind of economic reforms do we need to make? And, and like I said, this is all with a view towards um, reducing political tensions. That's what it's all about. So like, I'm not saying this is a philosophy that's a cure-all for, you know, for socioeconomic issues or for international geopolitics. This is specifically to reduce our pressures here at home. And it's really taking a bipartisan approach. And um, I'm, I'm also writing a book on the subject and uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of that. It's going to be under the same name. But yeah, so if any of your listeners have enjoyed listening to my slightly raspy voice today, uh, I, I do encourage them to take a look on over at the Relief Valve podcast with me and uh, reach out because I'm I'm actually very engaged with my listeners, of which, you know, there's a few dozen. I'm very, but I actually love it. I love having this interaction and I like getting pushback and I like getting feedback. I'm also on Reddit, on, you know, under my mm. actual name and stuff like that and on Twitter. Uh, people will push back. People send me emails. I've I have received now like, you know, like five or six page long emails. Like, here's why I think you're wrong. And I incorporate that. And I come back and I say, okay, like this guy had a better idea. So I'm going to do it. I put polls up on Twitter and I ask people whether or not they thought I was right on a subject. And sometimes they, they push back. And that's kind of what this is about is it's about like not, not letting your ego get in the way of figuring out how do we fix what ails us. I want to have you on my show again. You can come back anytime. Uh, we've been at this almost two hours. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you can come back anytime. Just awesome. I appreciate it, Ben. Great. Um, and maybe when more versus Harper comes down, I'll have you back, if not before. Um, thanks, Daniel. Um, all right. Like I say, every time, I'm having a great day, and I hope you are too. All right, folks. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. <laughs>